This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. The robots, as they say, are coming for our jobs. We live in an era where robots can not only do factory work, but also ace MIT examinations, write poetry, and so much more. But what does this mean for society? In conjunction with Merdeka and Malaysia Day, we're going to imagine and discuss what Malaysia could look like in 100 years with the rise of automation and AI technology. My guest on today's show is Jeremy Lim. He's the secretary of Imagine the Malaysia and the coordinator of Malaysia Muda. He's also published plenty of writings on political economy. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, a little hazy post-lunch, but otherwise I'm okay. <laughs> so what is your read on where we are today? What are the key crises that society is dealing with? So I think uh, <laughs> in a bit of the preempt, I did say that I'm a bit more of a pessimist. Right. Um, I want to zoom out just a little bit because I think Malaysia doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And I think you want to uh, read about Malaysia. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I think we're a middle-income country. Uh, we've done well for ourselves in the sense that we are not known for like one commodity. You know, we are not a petrol state. When we don't just pr- produce petroleum, we have palm oil, we have electronics. People may not know that. Um, we also make, you know, uh, different agricultural goods. Like, I mean, I think we still hold on to rubber. There are bits of tin refining we do. So I want to just make the point that uh, Malaysia is a bit of a diversified economy. So it's, we're not in, a, in the worst place. But I want to paint the global context because I think it's important to our discussion about AI. Uh, And I'll recommend this book by this this German guy who did his PhD in America, Aaron Bananaf, Automation and the Future of Work. The book is not about automation. Right. He he smokescreened it incredibly well. What he's talking about is global manufacturing overcapacity. That means that um, globally, there is... No more need for manufacturing overall. We are mm. over capacity. All the factories are actually operating below capacity. So what I mean by that is that if you have a factory, it can make 100 nuts and bolts every hour. Right now, because of the lack of demand or saturated demand, it's only making 80. Mm. Right. So in a world of global manufacturing over capacity, Malaysia has not too many places to go. We're right. looking at a global capitalism that's kind of stagnant. Um, and we face a few problems. Let me just lay this out real right. quick. So uh, back in the 90s, the, there was this flying geese theory. It's an economic theory. And, and just in short, Japan thought it would be the lead geese uh, would be at the front. It's a kind of imperialist theory. Um, and it would pass its machines and all its capital goods uh, to make stuff from itself to a next generation. So that next mm-hmm. generation was Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea. Right? And the theory went that these, these geese would then pass it on to the next set, and it would have been us, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand. Right. Um, in some senses, that did happen uh, after, I think, the 85 recession, and there was a global crisis and all of that. But what researchers have discovered is that post the Asian financial crisis, post the 90s heading into the 21st century, the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Taiwanese did not give up those product categories. Mm. They didn't stop making cars. So that didn't allow, for instance, Proton to fill the gap that Mitsubishi would have left. What's happening is that they are not leaving those product categories. Right. And in a lot of cases, they in East Asia, they've held on to this manufacturing capacity. It plays out differently in different regions. 
But that what that means is that we don't have this opportunity to climb up the technological ladder. It's right. stuck, right? And that's why when Mahathir resuscitated the uh, national car project during his last administration, I thought it was it was kind of a funny view because right. it was a view f- so much from the past, right? Right. Um, and you can agree or disagree whether we should just jump from manufacturing straight to digital, but economists have realized that there are fundamental benefits to doing manufacturing first before getting to the digital side. And so we are in a we have to acknowledge that in the picture I've just painted, um, and I will go off this premise, that we are kind of stuck in the middle. We mm. we are no longer able to recapture this manufacturing to be able to get our locals to be better engineers, um, to then allow them to spin off business businesses based on that production, because a lot of Proton was um, the idea was that Malaysian would make all the bits and bobs that go into a car. You know, Malaysians would make the glass, Malaysians would make the rubber, uh, nuts and bolts, uh, pieces of plastic, all of that. Um, without a manufacturing sector to kind of anchor that, mm. you would have trouble creating jobs, you would have trouble creating high-skilled jobs, um, and you would have trouble building entrepreneurial capacity. Right. And so we currently are in this moment. How important is automation in understanding how society is going to be shaped over the next century. Oof, okay, so that that's 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 hinged a lot on the imagination of the future, right? Right. Um, and I think there are enough dystopian fu- there's enough dystopian movie and TV series to tell <laughs> us that that's not always a nice future. So the role automation could play in that can go out a few ways. For Western countries, uh, for countries that already have robots. Um, they will continue to take part in manufacturing. Mm. But what I think is important to come across is that the researchers who've, who've dealt into this field are finding that automation is ha- happening more so in the service sector in Malaysia. Right. If you think about it, like we are not having more robots make stuff in factories. That's mm. just not the case. What we, are, what we are seeing is that robots are automating uh, certain processes, like, you know, norm, like if... If Grab in the past might have been operated through a switchboard where people get on the phone and get off the phone, now it's automated through an app. Um, if in the past there were servers at McDonald's, now they're going to be fewer, you know, touch and go, stuff like that. Right. So, so what we're finding is actually not the automation of manufacturing or agriculture. What we're finding is that services, the major uh, employer in Malaysia, 50 to 55% of Malaysians are employed in the service sector that is being automated. What does it mean that automation is now, you know, that our service sector is being automated? What, what does that mean? I think that that means that there's going to be a shrinking base of income. Mm. Um, and in Malaysia, I think I looked up this stat for this interview. <laughs> in Malaysia, it's really, really bad in the sense that, um, for instance, the US, because of labor unions, they fought for it and they died for it in the 1800s, leading into the early 1900s. Their labor share of income is about 60 to 70%, meaning for every dollar of, prof- the dollar of profit made, um, 60 to 70% of it goes to workers and then 30 uh, Thirty to forty percent goes to cap to the owners of capital. Mm-hmm. You know the business owners. In Malaysia, it's the reverse, right? Our labor share of income is thirty-two point four percent in twenty twenty-two. So that means that you know that much, only that much is going to a worker. And if you know increasingly the service sector is getting automated, that that the por- the people who are even getting that portion is going to shrink. 
and what that can lead to is um, conflicts. Yeah. I mean, societal conflicts. Yeah, you know, a lot of people um, when they talk about automation, there is this fear. You know, AI is coming for our <laughs> jobs. You know, AI is going to take over the world. You know, it right. sounds very dramatic. It's painted in that that way where AI is seen as the villain, mm. right? That is coming for our jobs. <laughs> but I, I heard this podcast on, on, on the Ezra Klein show um, mm. where Ted Chiang, um, one of the most um, prolific science fiction writers, um, he said that, you know, to him, he doesn't fear AI. What mm. he fears is capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> How do you see that? I mean, I'm, I'm in 100% agreement because, you know, historically, the drive to automation is the drive to have less workers, less pesky workers to deal with. And so that drive is not here because labor unions are not strong. There's no one to fight the, the capitalist class in right. that sense. Um, so the way I envision this going down is that in, in, in the next 20, 30, even maybe 40 years, uh, again, if climate change doesn't kill us all by then, um, the migrant workers might start going home. So you can mm. imagine that uh, Bangladesh, Indonesia become developed economies. They don't have to come here and work for us. They don't have to come here and be abused by um, employers here. Right. And then the Malaysian, the Malaysian capitalists will have to figure out who they're going to employ. Right. And it's going to have to be locals. And so as part of that process, um, alongside advances in technology, so the, the, the one advance I... I'm a technological optimist on is 3D printers because with a 3D printer, you can make like literally anything. So there are some aspects of production that can be decentralized and that can even be democratized. And so the drive to automation will then occur when local, local capitalists will have to deal with local workers who do not want to take on the horrible conditions of production on a factory floor. Right. So going back to this, um, you know, this very, I think it's a very profound quote by Ted Chiang, where he says he doesn't fear AI. And I think he was saying he doesn't fear automation mm. specifically as well, right? What he fears is how all of this, who controls all yes. of it. Yeah. And that where he says, I don't fear AI, I fear capitalism. Mm. What is the worst case scenario we are dealing with um, when we talk about this, this sort of um, technological revolution or, or this, this march towards automation, mm. um, what is the worst case scenario <laughs> where, uh, you know, as we know right now, most of these automations are owned by private entities. Mm. So what is the worst case scenario? I think the worst case scenario you're looking at because, uh, again, I, I come from an economics background. So mm -hmm. like the way I would see it is that a lot of these Again, if we go through the scenario, migrant workers leave, they have to deal with local workers. And I'll just quickly caveat that I think as time goes on and as climate change worsens and some of these conditions, we're going to bring more and more production back home. Mm. We're not going to make like just buy like nails and like wooden boards on, on bark from China. We're going to start making some of that on our own back home. And to, to have that be sustainable up to a point, the government has to be involved to subsidize that. Um, and so if the government and the capitalist class collaborate that closely, you could see these big monopolies cooperate. And mm -hmm. so you would have, you would approach the vision of those dystopian movies and TV series where uh, the government is these firms and these firms are also the government. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that's not inconceivable in a country like ours. Um, and if it remains that way, it, the, these kind of big state plus capital monopolies 
that control as- every aspect of your lives. Like, I don't think people find it that dystopian, but it probably in Japan, like there are six regions and basically you buy your candies, your f- your clothes, everything from one or two companies that own the that basically run the prefecture, right? It could it could look very much like right. that, and I think it's a worst case scenario because that means you don't have control of your workplace and you don't have control of your lives. Both both aspects are dominated by two different groups, capitalists and the state. Paint a picture for me, right? Because I think you brought up, uh, you know, dystopian movies. Um, a couple that I can think about is, let's say, the most pronounced one is Blade Runner 2049 or just Blade Runner in general. Sure. And what you can gather from that is that automation has, rep- you know, d- doesn't require our labor anymore yes. as they are doing a lot of the jobs, mm. factories, this and that. And, you know, one of the interesting things that, um, you know, when, when ChatGPT, for example, became like this huge thing, I think it was late December last year. Yep. Um, I think even just a constitutional lawyer in Malaysia, he tweeted something um, that, you know, I just simply tested out ChatGPT and, you know, it could do what I require um, junior lawyers to do at about 60% accuracy, mm. right? So we are looking at, let's say, you know, and that is just a chat GPT which you can use for free. Yeah. You know, we know <laughs> that it's it's only in the infant stages. Mm. It's going to get better. What happens when um, automation can do all the accounting work? We can do all the lawyers' work. I mean, there are companies in Malaysia already mm. replacing people like me yeah. with AI. <laughs> you know, what does that all mean in terms of what are we looking at? A vast amount of homelessness. Um, what is the education situation going to be like? Healthcare, yeah. um, uh, all of that. How, how will it look like society? Mm. So, I mean, again, if you try and draw on the imagery of these like um, dystopian films, mm-hmm. and I think there's one you can go and check it out on Netflix called Altered Carbon. Right. Uh, I think there. I, I like to think there are three layers. Mm-hmm. There are people who have been disposed of the workers, and they don't. Yeah, it's they don't need your labor anymore. I feel like that's a bit far away. That might be at the end of, closer to the end of that 100 years, but I right. think it could happen. And then there are the people whose inputs are still needed. So they consider that the buffer. So mm. people who work um, more human tasks, things that chat GPT, because I think, <laughs> I think we're going to reach a stage where the people at the top don't trust the machine. Right. And then there will still need to be this buffer to protect them from the workers below. Right. And then they're obviously the elites who control it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, you, if we go back to, I think what you might be hinting at is that there will be a mass amount of unrest. I'd like to think in those dystopian films, the, bad, the good guys always win. They do overthrow the elite. But I don't think that's yeah, necessarily going to be the way it plays out. Right. So it... it, it it's are we looking to... at large concentrations? So basically, are we looking at large concentrations of yeah. wealth in the hands of the elite? It could be the top 1%, the top 0.5%, 0.1%. And then the rest of us, and then there, there is the rest of us, which many of us may still be employed if we are privileged <laughs> enough. You know, if yeah. we come from the professional ma- professional managerial class, yep. you know, we might have <laughs> some jobs available for us. Yeah. Um, and then the rest of society just you know, unemployed, displaced, homeless. Are, are we looking at something like that? I, I think I think we are in that far future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, any any crisis would, would help exacerbate that because I think right now, gov- governments just generally are just not accountable to people anymore. They found ways to just, you know, either respond to, I mean, just pacify people and primarily just reproduce the capitalist system, right. I think. Um, on, on that front, yeah, I, I don't 
I don't think I can paint a more vivid picture than just the the vast number of homeless. And and worst of all, you know, um, I think it was a quote by this economist David Harvey. You know, um, people used to fight to not be exploited. You know, we're going to come. We may come to a point of desperation where people fight to be exploited, because you fight to just have an income to live, right? Wow. It, it's kind of yeah. But we we may have come to that point already. On the show with me today is Jeremy Lim, Secretary of Imagined Malaysia. We continue this discussion after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan. And on the show with me today is Jeremy Lim, Secretary of Imagined Malaysia. And in conjunction with Malaysia Day, we're imagining what this country could look like in 100 years with the rise of AI and automation. So, Jeremy, let's look at the flip side, Jeremy, because, um, you know, we are doing this, um, on, uh, you know, in conjunction with Malaysia Day. Um, we <laughs> want to topic, we yeah. Wanna, yeah we, we want to paint a, a positive picture, but sure. it's not just about wanting to paint a positive picture, right? Um, you started off with a bit of a disclaimer caveat that you are a bit of a pessimist. Yeah. But throughout the first half of the conversation, I think an important theme you, you talked about, an important problem is how society is structured, how economy is structured, and that is capitalism. Mm. So this terrible outcome, this dystopian outcome that mm. we are seeing is not so much about automation in a vacuum, yeah. but who owns this automation. Yep. So on the flip side, many thinkers around the world, mm. including um, Aaron Bastani, who's written a riveting book on this, um, he talks about a world where all or most of the jobs are completely automated. Yep with a prosperous outcome for everyone. Mm -hmm. So it's the completely different um, <laughs> dystopian Blade Runner 2049 situation. It's a point where automation, you know, is, is doing a lot of the work um, and that is good yep. for society. Mm -hmm. What could that world look like? I don't know if he draws on it, but I think a famous, uh, the former Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, talks about having the Star Trek universe, right. you know, where uh, we've got just so much free time, we decided to explore the universe, <laughs> right? That, that would be the dream. Um, and I'd like to think that could happen because as I was thinking through, you know, <laughs> the, the scenario that, um, uh, that we were talking about, I mean, I think why I anchor it is in, in the fact that if they have, if capitalists, local capitalists have to bring production home, that means that people here will, you know, fight for their conditions to be better. And I think that's the only kind of scenario that we get to this, you know, that we get to a point where all of us own the robots collectively, right? right and so, get to enjoy that. What are we looking at, right? Mm. So let's say automation does my job. Sure. It does, it does most people's jobs, Oof. factory workers' jobs, all <laughs> these things, right? So I'm wondering, could we have universal basic services and perhaps universal basic income as well? So a society where I, I can just walk into a hospital whenever <laughs> I'm sick, get the best treatment, and, and, and I walk out of there for free. Right. And there's no homelessness because mm. housing is completely free. Um, public transport is efficient, super connected cities. And free. And free. Sure. Could we arrive at a situation like that? Can you imagine <laughs> a society like that? Uh, okay, so for the conversation to be more interesting rather than me saying <laughs> yes, I'm actually going to say no. Because I, I, I have thought about that. Right. And I have thought about uh, writers like Aaron mm -hmm. uh, and specifically where they come from. Right, right. Because I think they can envision that for the West because they live in abundance. Mm. And I... 
am both a pessimist and an optimist in the sense that we don't, like, I mean, abundance would be nice, but I think, you know, we can live with less. Mm. So I'm, I'm more in the camp of maybe a lot of these things won't be automated, but I, the kind of, the kind of future that I want a hundred years from now, we will work four hours a day. So I dug up the, the Keynes quote about, um, by 2030, it's not going to happen, but by 2030, uh, John Maynard Keynes, an uh, economist uh, during the World War II period, predicted we'd be working 15 hours a week. Right. You know, it, may, it might happen. But I I think it's a d- different image than what you picture. You know, I imagine more localized production, meaning uh, it might, quote unquote, cost more, but because everybody is being paid this high wage, it doesn't matter, you know. If we make everything on our own that we can, furniture, food, uh, health services, all of it will be will be done at a local level, um, and you would just you would have these basic services for cheap because it's owned collectively. Right, you know, it's owned communally, either at a district level or state level, and there'd be more democratic oversight so that you you know they could try they could figure out new ways to lower prices or to have people do less paperwork for all this kind of stuff. I think there is a world in which we get all of the stuff that uh, Aaron talks about in that book, um, all the services that you talk about, but it's not automated. We all still work a minimum right. of four hours. Because, and, and I just want to get back to the slight pessimist point. Like, I think until today, like scientists, um, engineers are killing themselves trying to figure out how to automate the harvesting of palm oil bunches. Mm. And they can't do it, right? Some of that just has to be done by humans. And I think um, the, comp- the the halfway point between the world falling apart and us being ruled by um, capitalist elite and this automated future is somewhere in the middle where we do four hours of work and then the rest of the time, you, you can do whatever you want. That sounds you know? brilliant, right? Be- yeah. Because, you know, people, I think, have this idea, oh, what are you going to do if you're not working? But yeah. nobody's saying everybody <laughs> is going to be hermits living unproductive lives. Yeah. What we are saying is, Living a life, like you said, even if your situation where you consider it sort of like the middle, right? Mm. It's not a fully automated... Doesn't look uh, like Star Trek. (laughs) Doesn't look like Star Trek and and things like that. But it is, you know, it's this this sort of um, situation where people go to work, um, they do fulfilling jobs, um, jobs that, that you know, stimulate the the mind a Mm. lot more, um, you know, and they get way higher salaries. When we think of automation, right? At the longest time, right, when we look at, let's say, a caveman, right? You know, I'm just going to give the random, let's say a caveman. Now they need to catch a tiger. So they don't have anything yet. They haven't invented nets. So 10, 20 people need to go wrestle the tiger. Yep. Few people are going to die, blah, blah, blah. Then mm. they innovate. They come up with a, with a trap, um, a complex trap. So now instead of 20 people going out, 10 people need to go. The rest of them can stay back at the village. They can learn yep. new skills. They can play with their kids. Mm. Um, they can do all these kinds of things. That is just seen as a natural transition, yep. right? You create automation so that it liberates you. When automation can do my work, means I'm scared. Yes. Why? Okay, so that, that is actually grounded in quite possibly the physical limits of technology. Mm. What, what I mean by that is that, you know, building a trap, you can do. Mm. Building an airport or an airplane is not something you can do alone. Mm. And so... As, as these technologies progress, I mean, you can imagine an iPhone is not the invention of one dude. It's not the invention of Steve Jobs. A million people go into the production of an iPhone in different parts. And so the 
the physical intensity and the capital intensity, how much money, how much effort, how much material you need to put in it, tends to scale. Hmm. And by virtue of the economic system that we've acquired, it's a historical accident, but also a cause of it that only capitalism was able to then gather the money to build effect a machine like right. machines like that. So it it is it is at the same time the natural course of history um, that you know you need to assemble a certain amount of money before you can build a power plant of this size that's efficient yada yada. So the physical limits of these technologies become a requirement for larger and larger amounts of accumulated capital, labor, and materials. And so because the way political systems have evolved alongside the economic system, so what we have today is capitalism and democracy, um, these were the only systems that could bring us up to this point. And there are certain historians of philosophers who uh, would argue that it's a historical necessity to do that. But the, the real question is what happens next. Right. Now that we have these things, is another system able to continue this process? I think it's a function of, again, both capitalism and democracy. Mm-hmm. We, are, we see ourselves, uh, and that's been programming for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, rather than collectives. You mm-hmm. can argue that uh, Asian, it's a very racist trope that Asian societies are more collective rather than individual. But like it or not, we do have... Um, a kind of pockets of individualism in that sense, you know. Uh, we see people in, like, we see people as our own only when they're in our families or in their race or from our village or from our city or whatever. So we no longer see society as that collective. And so mm. the the worry about the five people who, I mean, the five people who no longer have to set up traps because someone else already did, they didn't have to worry when, you know, life was organized more collectively. Right. Um, and it's not to say that under previous systems like feudalism or slavery that it was better, but there were there were certain social safety nets to it that um, had some benefits and that's that's worth revisiting in this discussion about automation. Right. Right. But that can only happen if everybody and I mean everybody owns the machines. Right. So let's talk about that. What would it take to achieve a society like this? I know it's an idealized one. People have universal basic services. Like you said, people are working four hours a day or people are working three days a week. Mm. These kinds of arrangements. um, And if people are working three three days a week or four hours a day, not for less money. It's for more money or same same (laughs) amount of money. Right. Right. What would it take to get to that point? Are, are we talking about heavily taxing these automations? Are we talking about radically redesigning the way our economy is structured altogether? I mean, taxing it seems like straightforward enough, right? But uh, that depends how it gets here. You know, I don't. Um, <laughs> given the history of it, the capitalists will find a way out of getting taxed. Um, <laughs> so I think it comes down to a political settlement. Um, and so. To really get there, you need to get people to identify as those workers. Right. Like it or not, people are the ones who will right. have built that machine. Right. People would have been the ones to mine the metal that goes into the machine. Right. Right. We always there, there is a trope that's not activated in our minds that um, that I think people well-meaningly and I think sincerely say that, you know, the foreign workers who build our homes, who clean our toilets, did build this country, right? And that's a sentiment that 
we can articulate for them, mm-hmm. but we don't internalize ourselves. Right. And and that that for me is you know something that's difficult to overcome to have people not identify as just individuals, but as work as workers collectively. That's that's something that has to be overcome with confidence building, you know, with people identifying with a cause. Um, because like it or not, now we're pretty op- we're we're, we're even oppressed individually sometimes. Right. Like a lot of gig work, people don't see themselves as oppressed collectively. People see themselves as oppressed individually. Mm-hmm. And so the recognition of that oppression as a collective act is something that people will have to grapple with over time. Um, because I am a pessimist in so many other areas, but I do <laughs> believe that when people are oppressed, you know, they're not going to sit down and take it quietly. Right. Right. Absolutely. Uh, we, I can only hope that it manifests in the right ways. Yeah. So for people who may not understand, just um, paint a picture, break it down for me. Um, we talk about at the end, at the end of the day, it's it comes boils down to things. Who owns the the automation in this mm. regard? Because you're talking about automation. Um, the first half we talked about the worst case scenario, um, because they are owned by um, the, the private entities. Um, mm. They are owned by the private sector. They are owned by the top 1%, 0.5% of society, 0.1% of society. Sure. And in this, um, to reach an idealized situation or mm. an ideal situation or even get close to it, we need the automation to be collectively owned. Yep. So what is the difference between that, between private ownership and collective <laughs> ownership? <laughs> so there are actually three three ways to mm-hmm. look at, I mean, private. I think private ownership is very straightforward. Right. Um, it can be complicated by the fact that the government can step in. So, like, you know, if it's a government capitalist kind of partnership, that that's the way it's complicated. Um, in quote unquote failed communist experiments, you know, the government held uh, the quote unquote productive forces, the factories, the farms, all of that, in the name of the people, mm-hmm. right, and that. And that system is prone to abuse. What you what you really want is, you know, people democratically owning. I mean, and deciding it. And so people have experimented with things like community banks, where you know members of the community vote on how a bank gives loans. So you can prioritize like social things. And that is the, that is how we may get to own the machines. Um, I think in Japan, for example, like communities own like solar farms and try to produce power at a local level, you know, stuff stuff like that are interesting models to kind of examine because what it teaches people to do is it teaches people to act as a community, mm. you know, and it's not like people aren't uh, able to, but I think we've been socially conditioned to do that less and less as time goes by. And so, yeah, I think there is a way in which we do own the machines, um, but it's going to be, have, it's going to have to be very deliberate. In the sense that people are talking about ChatGPT, people are not talking about how to own ChatGPT. Right. Right? Um, and so that's, again, because of the way we think of ourselves in society. And so, yeah, I think there, there will be avenues. Hopefully people uh, think about, like, give them some serious thought because you're not going to accidentally own the machines. You're going to have to deliberately find a way to own them. People during the, during the 2008 financial crisis, when they attempted to fire workers... What workers did, they occupied the factories. But, you know, people have found ways of sticking together, um, of, you know, uh, what kind of salvaging the dignity of their work. And and in in that, they recognize that, you know, 
it is not just the capitalists that built the company. They did, right? And, and a lot of that is built in. So I think people need to... And I think <laughs> for those of us from the quote-unquote professional managerial class, we see ourselves as uh, transient or temporary. You know, we move from one company to another, but we don't recognize that we play a part in reproducing the company. And that is an important thing to, um, to kind of recognize so that there are stakes, mm. you know. Otherwise, most people will be like, okay, the company's, the company's firing everyone. I'm going next door to go and get another job. Right. Right. Um, and so I think that that is that is needed before we get to any point where people feel like they can, well, sort of collectively run a company and then make these decisions to try and push back against AI taking over their jobs. Yeah. Well, on that note, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That was Jeremy Lim, Secretary of Imagine Malaysia. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.